0: Thanks, Ben. Um, If you have a Bible, you want to open up to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And right from the beginning here this morning, um, I'm going to sort of betray your expectations a little bit. If you're someone who's going to pass out communion, will you come and grab these trays? Get those going. Um, If you have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, Uh, whether LCF you would call your church home or not. Um, We invite you to take this alongside us. Typically, what would happen is that as we pass these out, I would tell you, go ahead and set that on the ground. We're going to get to that later. Today, I'm telling you, go ahead and hold those in your hands because we're going to do this uh, first today, which is a little bit different, I realize. Normally, we would sort of, our time in worship, our time in God's word, we would on this particular Sunday of the month, lead ourselves toward communion. Today, we're going to take that and then spend the rest of our service reflecting on it. And so um, while you get that distributed, we've talked over the course of our Genesis series about contract versus covenant. We're gonna talk about that again this morning, but I I wanna illustrate the difference again in those two things. Modern Western people, we understand contract really well. In fact, you sit down at a restaurant and you look at a menu, the waiter or the waitress comes over, you order, you're, you're entering into a very informal contract. I want that thing and I will pay you that amount for it. So you on your end bring me that thing and I on my end will pay you. Now mid-meal The circumstances of that contract may change. They might bring you the wrong thing. And so now we've got to figure out, are you uh, giving me a discount and I'll eat the wrong thing? Or are you going to bring me another one, but I'm only paying you for one of them? Or midway through, you could decide we want to order dessert. And now the terms have changed and the cost is going to change. Contract. The Bible is set up not in contracts, but in a series of covenants. Contracts are mostly self-protecting. The restaurant lists the price there to protect themselves because this is how much you owe us. It also lists the price as a protection for you. We're not going to charge you more than that. Covenants, on the other hand, are set up in terms of self-giving. We've mentioned this before, but the best illustration that we have available in our context for a covenant is marriage. Two... Uh, typically young people stand up in front of all of their friends and family and before God, and in the best case scenario, they make promises to one another without having any clue what's to come on the backside of those promises. And what what are you covenanting to one another? Again, in the best case scenario, I'm I'm giving you myself regardless of what comes on the backside of these promises. So I'm not self-protecting because I can't possibly know everything that's about to happen. Instead, what I'm doing is in a covenant, I'm self-giving. And I'm promising to give myself to you. Over and over and over and over, in sickness or in health, for rich or for poor, in good times and in bad, until death do us part, I'm giving myself to you. That's covenant, or at least the best picture of covenant that we have available in our society and in our time god is a god of covenant throughout the bible by his own free choice and of his own grace god binds himself to humanity in self-giving covenant relationship so with noah he says i'm making a covenant with you noah and with all of humanity i will not destroy the earth by flood ever again and he binds himself in that way. With Abraham, he promises Abraham land and seed and blessing. And God says, I will do these things. I'm giving of myself to make those promises come true. With Moses, God says, look, Israel will be my chosen people. I will be your God. You will be my people. And then he literally gives his presence to Israel They're at the tabernacle, and then God is is with them in a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of smoke and cloud by day. With David, God makes a covenant, and he says, someone from your line will sit on the throne of Israel forever. And then he gives himself again, his presence at the temple, which David's son builds. God is self-giving. Then there's a new covenant. Listen to the way that Luke describes the first communion meal. And he, that's Jesus, took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Brothers and sisters, that little wafer in your hand represents the body of Christ given for you in covenant relationship, the Son of God self-giving, eat in remembrance of him. Luke goes on, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Self-giving covenant relationship. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Brothers and sisters, the blood of Jesus poured out for you. Let's pray. God, we praise you that you are not a self-protecting God. Because you are self-giving. God, we can be forgiven and made right in relationship with you because you did not hold back of yourself but gave yourself a body given and blood poured out for your people in a new covenant scripture says God would you help us to understand that clearly to reflect upon that and to celebrate it this morning as we think about the birth of Jesus we pray this in his name amen Our third Advent uh, sermon this this year is going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 56. What we're going to see is that the long-expected mediator is Jesus, and that he gives himself in covenant faithfulness. The question remaining there would be, whose covenant faithfulness? Because covenants are two-sided. And the answer to that question is yes. If you've got Luke 1 open in front of you, read along with me. Luke 1 beginning in verse 46 says this, And Mary said, My soul praises the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, because the Mighty One has done great things for me, and His name is Holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear Him. He has done a mighty deed with His arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel, remembering His mercy... To Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. And Mary stayed with her, that's Elizabeth, about three months. Then she returned to her home. We're going to work through this passage backwards this morning. Biblical history, God's chosen pattern of covenant interaction with humanity are built on the last thing that Mary says. So we're going to start there and then work backward. And in the same form as the last two weeks, we're just gonna kind of answer some questions. Who does Luke show us that Jesus is? And how does he fulfill these Old Testament types that we're seeing in the book of Genesis? And then what are we celebrating at Christmas? So Luke 1, open there. Let's back up just a little bit and get some of the context for Mary's song. Throughout history, this outburst of praise from Mary has been known as the Magnificat. The reason for that title comes from the first words of this in Latin. Magnificat anima mea dominum. My soul praises the greatness of the Lord. But it's worth seeing how Luke tells us that this outpouring of praise comes about. So in Luke chapter 1 verses 26 to 38, Mary finds out from Gabriel that she's going to be pregnant. Matthew chapter 1 that we looked at last week, told us about Joseph finding out that Mary was already pregnant. That happened in a dream. Luke records Mary finding out that she's going to be pregnant, but it's not in a dream. It would appear that the angel Gabriel just appears and has actual conversation with her. And in that conversation, Mary is told that her child will be named Jesus, that he will be great, that he'll be called Son of the Most High, and that he will sit on the throne of David forever. And when she wants to know how that's possible, she's told that the Holy Spirit will come upon her, overshadow her, because nothing is impossible with God. And if she needs evidence of this, she need only to check with her relative, Elizabeth, who is pregnant despite being unable to conceive. Now, in modern times, that is when a young teenager would say, wait right there, pull out their cell phone and FaceTime, Elizabeth, show me your stomach. I'm, I'm having a wild conversation and you are supposed to be the proof that you're pregnant. Okay, that's not possible. So Mary instead gets on a donkey and travels about 100 miles in order to see Elizabeth. Once there, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, that's John the Baptist, leaps inside of her. And as Mary walks into the house, verse 42, then Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women. And your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside of me. Blessed is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. And all of that, the conversation with Gabriel, the angel, the news of this miraculous and significant pregnancy, the journey to Elizabeth's house, Elizabeth's greeting, the confirmation of everything sends Mary into praise. My soul praises the greatness of the Lord. The words of her praise give us this incredible insight into how it is that Mary understands the child that she's about to give birth to. So, three things from her song we're starting at the bottom verse 54. Jesus is the great evidence of God's faithful mercy. He has helped his servant Israel remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he spoke to our ancestors. This child is the evidence that God has helped Israel remembered his mercy to Abraham's descendants. And the construction there in Greek that's in front of us, remembering his mercy, is the equivalent of a Hebrew single word, hesed. Hesed means loyal, steadfast, faithful love based on a promise or a covenant. Mary's articulating just that. This child that the angel told her about, This child that Elizabeth confirmed. He is the evidence that God has helped Israel and been faithful to his covenant. But that help and mercy is not a surprise. It is just as God said he would do. He made a covenant, a self-giving agreement to Abraham. Mary knows that. You've remembered your faithful mercy to Abraham. And in this child, God has acted in accordance with that covenant. He's been mercifully, covenantally faithful to his people in the sending of this child. That's Mary's landing point. It's our starting point for looking at this praise. To the ancient reader of the Bible who lives in a covenant culture rather than a contract culture, The nature of God from beginning to end has been astounding. The ancient framework for understanding God and religion is that the gods were taking. Humanity was the means by which the God fulfilled their own needs. The Bible presents something completely different. That God is giving. That God is the means by which the needs of humanity met he is self-giving not only is he not self-protecting he's not self-taking from humanity he's a covenant-making god that's the very nature of who he is and how the god of the bible has chosen to interact with humanity and in sending this child god's acted faithfully number two Jesus is the great reversal of humanity's expectations. Look at verse 51. He's done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. That reversal motif is huge for Luke. All throughout the ministry of Jesus, there's this reversing motif of what we would expect to be true mary's foreshadowing that god is mighty and he scatters the proud he exalts the lowly and topples even the mightiest of kings he satisfies the hungry sends the rich away empty in the biblical picture this is what god has done in choosing abraham he worked through a man who left everything had nothing to bring about a people though he could have no children who are blessed by god and are a blessing to the world. In the physical ministry of Jesus, we're gonna see this most poignantly. He's gonna scatter the proud Pharisees and religious leaders. He's gonna topple the most powerful of rulers. He's going to uplift the lowly and the needy. In the truest spiritual sense, we're going to see it as well. It's the humble who come to him and find refuge. It's those who are willing to make him their king, that find his loving lordship. It's the spiritually hungry who are fed by his grace. And all that flies in the face of what humanity would expect. In a practical sense, we expect the powerful to remain powerful. We expect the prideful to remain prideful. We expect the needy to remain needy. Not in this child, Mary says. In a religious or spiritual sense, we would expect the powerful creator God of the universe not to bind himself in self-giving, to love the lowly, broken among humanity. We would expect him to use the powerful, work through channels of influence. Instead, he upends that. That's what we have in the God of the Bible, and that's what he does in the son as the son comes into the world he's acted faithfully to do that and last jesus is the great source of his people's praise my soul praises the greatness of the lord my spirit rejoices in god my savior because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant surely from now on all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He's done a mighty deed with his arm. Jesus is the source of his people's praise. Note that this is both personal and corporate for Mary. She sort of jumps back and forth between this is what he's done for me and this is what he's done for his people. They, surely they will call me blessed, but he has been merciful from generation to generation. What doesn't change in any of that, whether personal for her or corporate, is the source. His greatness is what her soul magnifies. He has looked with favor. He is the mighty one who has done great things. His name is the one that is holy. He's been merciful from generation to generation. He has done mighty deeds. He has toppled the mighty and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry. Why has he done all of that? To help his servant israel to remember his mercy to abraham and his descendants forever and how has that love been displayed here in this child that mary is now carrying and so elizabeth says how could it be that the mother of my lord would come to me and mary responds surely from now on all generations will call me blessed We mentioned this a bit last week, but again, see how Mary sees herself. She doesn't see herself as the special one in this whole thing. God is. She says, surely from now on, generations will call me blessed or fortunate, smiled upon, pronounced happy. Why? Because I was chosen to carry the evidence of God's faithful mercy the reversal of humanity's expectations, the source of his people's praise. People will call me blessed, Mary says, because of Jesus, not because of me. We've, we've taken three separate sort of explanations or depictions of Jesus' origin over the last few weeks. In John, the explanation is spiritual. Jesus is God sent by God active agent in creation, embodiment of the word of God, long expected victor over darkness. In Matthew, that origin is very practical. Jesus is the son of Mary, the adopted son of Joseph, the son of God, the long expected savior who saves his people from their sins. In Luke, at least from the mouth of Mary, it's very experiential. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's mercy and we feel that or receive that. Jesus is the reversal of our expectations and we watch as he does that. Jesus is the source of his people's praise, which is how we respond when we see him fulfill God's mercy and reverse our expectations. A spiritual understanding, a practical understanding. Now Luke, through the mouth of Mary, gives an experiential understanding. And so the question is, what is it that we're celebrating at Christmas? When we come together and we sing about a baby in a manger, when we come together as a church and celebrate the advent of Jesus, well, we're celebrating the fact that Jesus is this long-expected covenant mediator giving himself in covenant faithfulness. Hebrews 9 says this about Jesus, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might inherit the eternal promises. Jesus knits the Bible together, not by doing away with the Old Testament, which literally the Old Covenant, but by fulfilling it in the New Testament, literally the New Covenant. The new covenant that Jesus brings doesn't negate the old. It provides the ultimate, the true fulfillment of all God's self-giving covenant promises. And the way that Jesus does that is by fulfilling both sides of covenant faithfulness. He mediates a new covenant that fulfills every previous covenant. Perfect, self-giving, covenant love and faithfulness present in a person who's fully God and fully human. And as fully God, he gives himself to humanity in the person and the work of the Son. And as fully human, he gives himself to God in perfect submission and perfect righteousness. When God the Son gives himself into the world, the giving of himself on the cross is as good as done. That's what you're celebrating at Christmas. That when God, the Son, gave Himself to humanity into the world, in flesh. Well, what happens on the cross is as good as over. What did Jesus say? He said, in the same way, took the cup after the supper and said, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you, for the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined. As soon as the baby was born, it was only going one place. And the whole life of Jesus, not to be like overly trite, is like the end of a football game when the score is determined and we're just kneeling out the clock. It's over. So when the eternal Son of God gives himself in the flesh, the giving on the cross is as good as done. And so because of that, Jesus fulfills the promise of eternal preservation. The covenant with Noah said that God wouldn't destroy the earth by flood again. Now in Jesus, we have the promise that not only will we be preserved from judgment, but when God renews, restores, and recreates in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll be there as inhabitants. The new covenant means that we have eternal preservation, salvation from the just consequences for our sin. And the good news of that promise is that the wrath of God's just judgment for sin need not fall on you because it's fallen upon the Son. And so at Christmas, that sweet baby in the manger. We're celebrating the fact that he grows up to be the wrongly accused man on the cross, the triumphant victor out of the grave, and the ascended advocate who sits at God's right hand, who you are hidden inside. And you've got eternal preservation. How did it come about? Covenant faithfulness. He gave himself in self-giving love. You take your communion... What are we reflecting upon? A given son whose body given for me, whose blood poured out for me, means that I'm preserved eternally. It's every time we get together and take communion, and you do that by yourself on the first Sunday of the month or with your family or others in your small group or or whatever the case might be, or we do that the third Sunday of the month as part of the sermon, and you're like, what am I supposed to be reflecting on right now? Reflect on that. You've got eternal preservation. That's not all, because Jesus fulfills the promise of eternal blessing. The covenant with Abraham said that he would be blessed and be a blessing to all the nations. Now, in Jesus, we have multiple promises of blessing. We've got a promise of treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. Jesus promises something even better than that, though. The blessing not of material wealth in this life, but the spiritual wealth of communion with the Son. An inheritance in heaven that's unfading and undefiled, the prosperity of a contented soul that clings not to the things of this world, but to the things of the world to come. And the good news of this promise is that you don't have to clutch after the stuff of this world. Why? Because A, you've got the guarantee of something better in the next. And B, your hands are full of something else. The sun. You're clinging to something different. So when we take communion, you've got a little cup there, juice, and you've got a little wafer If nothing else, there should be a visual reminder, at least the way that we do it, I can hold nothing other than these two things. Nor do I need to. I don't need to set these down and try to pick something else up. Why? Because in Jesus, I've got eternal blessing and why would I want to grab hold of something lesser? That's not all. Because Jesus fulfills the promise of an eternal home. The covenant with Abraham said that he would be given a home. That a man who left his homeland and became a wanderer would be given a place that would be his own. Now here's the reversal of this. Because in Jesus, you've now become a wanderer. But not an aimless one. You've become a wanderer who has a concrete home. Citizenship in a place that is not here you are an alien in a broken world with a home somewhere else philippians 3 says that our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await the savior from there the lord jesus christ notice it isn't that our citizenship will one day be in heaven you've got citizenship in heaven right now by god's grace through faith in jesus when you are saved that citizenship gets transferred your home is there now not here. But that doesn't mean that we abandon this place or that we cease to care about it. It means we live in this place with the understanding that we're citizens of another. We live here as ambassadors of our true home. Why would we give our time and our money, our energy, to making bags of stocking stuffers for kids in foster care? to filling up shoeboxes to send to children that we won't ever interact with. Because that's how it is there. That's not how it is here. It doesn't make sense to use your resources on that here. In fact, it's completely nonsensical. But Jesus betrays your expectations. Creates a people who would live with a heavenly mindedness rather than an earthly mindedness. To go back to Philippians, That citizenship there is what enables followers of Jesus to shine like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life. The good news of this promise is that understanding where our true home is enables us to rightly engage with what happens around us. We can work for the realities of our true home as we live in this world. We need not be shocked and dismayed when this world betrays what our heart desires. So when you take communion the blood of the new covenant, a body given for you. You can remind yourself, whatever life has been like before you came into the place where you took that meal, the stuff out there is not my true home. I have a guarantee of another and here's the guarantee. The son gave himself self-giving love to secure for me an eternal home. That's not all because Jesus fulfills the promise of an eternal family. The covenant with Abraham said that he would be given descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky or the dust on the ground. And now in Jesus, we too have the promise of innumerable family, not brought together by our genes and blood, but by the work and the blood of Jesus. The promise is not that we'll all have children, but that we'll have family. Here's the thing about family. No matter how weird and quasi-dysfunctional you are, at the very least, you and your family get it. No one else might, but you and your family do. The Macquarie family, that's Melody's family. They quote Rocket Man and Big Burger as if they are like AFI top 50 movies of all time. If you go to Rotten Tomatoes, the combined score of those two movies does not get to 50. But that's okay. Because the Macquarie family loves those movies and no one else might get it, but they do. If you grew up in the Fritzen family, you had potato chips with pizza. That was a meal, a set meal where every time you had pizza, you had potato chips. And if there weren't potato chips, the meal was incomplete. (laughs) Look, there are times in my adult life where I've gotten together for pizza, and I'm looking around like, doesn't everybody have potato chips with this? Like, where? (laughs) What is happening? What is that salad? (laughs) There are supposed to be chips. And like, no one else gets it. But the Fritzen family gets it. Church, no matter how weird the rest of the world thinks we are, we get it. Brought together by the blood of Jesus, a people from every nation and tongue living in this world according to our citizenship in another, awaiting the day that we join together in an eternal dwelling, all that has been secured for us by Jesus in a new covenant, because he gave himself for his people. And so when you take communion, I would encourage you, look around the room. It's not perfect. It's not perfect in this church. It won't be perfect in any other church. But this is the family. Strange as it might be, that Jesus has brought together thanks to his work on the cross, thanks to his self-giving covenantal love. And one day, despite all of the imperfections of this body, when we are glorified, it will be perfect. And it will be the most beautiful expression of humanity. That eternity has ever known. But that's not all, because Jesus fulfills the promise of eternal righteousness. The covenant with Moses said that Israel could be righteous by following the law. Now, in Jesus, we have the promise of eternal righteousness that is found in Him, not in our often fledgling obedience. His righteousness is perfect, it's eternal. It's been given to us as if it's his own. And as his people, when we enjoy the eternal blessing of dwelling with him forever in our eternal home, with our eternal family, and all of our eternal blessings, there will only be righteousness. And the good news of that promise is that the pain and the hurt of sin that we experience in this world, it won't last forever. It will not get the final word. Every time we take communion, we can remind ourselves all of the pain and the hurt that I experience in this broken world, the son experienced as well. And he gave himself for me. And he promises me a place where there is only eternal righteousness. And no matter how discouraged, how heavy life in this world might be, it can't win. It won't win. It won't last forever It's temporary. And we can endure. Why? Because we're propped up by the sun. And because we're promised something different. A place where only righteousness reigns. Last, Jesus fulfills the promise of eternal kingship. The covenant with David promised a king on the throne from the line of David. And now here he is of the legal line of David inhabiting the world that he has been ruling forever. Think about that. Eternal son of God, the active agent in creation, enters into the world and breathes the air that he created. Inhabits the world that he upholds. And here's the thing, throughout his life, he does not look like the kind of king his people are expecting, and that's the whole point. Kings are self-protecting. The king of kings is self-giving. That's the kind of king we need, one who remembers his mercy and does mighty deeds because of and on behalf of his people, because of his great name, one who satisfies and exalts those who humbly wait for him, one who our souls can magnify and our spirits can rejoice in, not just for a time span measured in earthly years, but forever and ever and ever and ever. To borrow from Sandlot, for The good news of this promise is that the baby in the manger who's come to give himself in covenant love and faithfulness is a good king. And he's got plenty of experience ruling with righteousness because that's all he's ever done. He's a good king who will never cede the throne to another. He's a good king And so, my soul praises the greatness of the Lord. And so when you take communion, yes, you're remembering and reflecting upon the death of the son. But you're also remembering and celebrating the coronation of the king. And so, what is Christmas? It's the celebration once a year of the fact that the eternal son of God cloaked himself in flesh, came into the world, and all of those promises were as good as fulfilled. Because when he came into the world, the cross was a guarantee. The tomb was a guarantee. The resurrection was a guarantee his ascension was a guarantee and all of your earthly blessings and eternal promises a guarantee and so we get together and we sing oh come let us adore him why would you adore that baby you would adore that baby Because that baby is self-giving covenant love that has secured for you every promise made in the Bible and given to you an eternity of enjoying those promises. Amen? Amen. So, church, let our souls magnify the Lord together. If you're able, stand up and let's sing.